0: Welcome everyone, I'm delighted to welcome you here and also to welcome Professor George Sakai from the University of Connecticut. Um, we have a series of these, uh, Dean's Lecture Series, whatever we want, we're varying the name as we go along depending on uh, the format, uh, where we are fortunate enough to um invite and involve uh, international experts in particular areas, and we're absolutely delighted that you can be with us um, this evening. Good evening, everyone. Great to be here. Thank you all for coming out on this late evening. Um, I should also tell you that uh, what you heard David describe is probably an exaggeration of who I really am but I'll try to give you some content to try to back that up a little bit. I should also tell you that um, you can blame me for David Evans, because David Evans got his PhD at the University of Oregon, and I was there, and I believe I was also, he was in a couple of my classes. I passed him along, so he's, uh, I'm probably accountable for who he is, and those of you that know David. But David's an old friend, I really do appreciate him, and uh, Diane asked me to come here to present. All right, so what I was asked to do and I'll try to do is spend a little bit of time focusing on some of the work that I do and how I think it relates to some of the things that you all in this room are about. It's my understanding that many of you in this room are from the local community and from the schools. Some of you are graduate students. I'm here to see if you would like to transfer to the University of Connecticut (laughs) to see me afterwards. Um, And I also know some of you are researchers and are interested in some of the, the kind of work that we do to justify our or provide evidence for our work. I know some of you are family members, some of you may or may not have disabilities yourself, so I'm gonna try to kind of cover the range of of people who are in the room, so I do appreciate you coming. Um, So let me kind of move through this fairly quickly. Uh, What I'd like to do for the next uh, three hours, I think, (laughs) for about an hour or so, or less, is cover a number of different topics, and even though I set a title and a description, I think I changed it a little bit just uh, based on having some conversations with David and Kathy Little and some others about things to kind of emphasize. I also would encourage you to ask questions, uh, make comments, interrupt at any time. Uh, I'm a trained behavior manager, so I know how to deal with people who interrupt, and um, (laughs) I'm happy to entertain questions. Um, We have a limited amount of time, so if I cut you off, it's not because I don't like you. It's just that we need to kind of move on. Uh, Did any of you hear the um, ABC News interview I did this morning? Okay, you may leave now. (laughs) You know everything I know. I did that in seven minutes. Um, But it was really a pleasure to be able to speak to um, Wendy because she gave me a chance to kind of describe what's going to happen tonight as well as some of the work that we did. Okay, uh, what I've been asked to do is speak a little bit about what behavior has to do with education and how some of the things that we do affect or improve the outcomes of students, all students, but in particular those students with disabilities, because that's sort of my background. I'm going to try to touch the nerve of general and special education. I'm going to focus on school psychologists and counselors. I'm going to focus a little bit on how we prepare teachers to go out into the field and how we work with with teachers who uh, are already employed and so forth. I'm going to make fun of administrators. My wife is a school principal, headmaster. Uh, I really believe they're important people in the process. I'll describe a little bit about how we think about the role of school leadership as well. So these are the topics I'm going to try to touch on. I'll spend about mm, seven or eight minutes on both, uh, on each one of these. I'm going to focus a little bit on my area, which is called positive behavioral interventions and supports. I'm going to describe for you how that relates to something called multi-tiered systems, which is something that's become much more prominent in the literature, especially uh, sort of in the United States. Focus a little bit on school climate, a little bit at the end. Uh, Quite a bit on classroom and school-wide discipline and classroom and behavior management. And then a little bit on social skills instruction if we have time. So I'm going to kind of dabble on those topics and give you some things to think about. So I'm going to try to take about 35 years worth of what I've learned and put it into about 35 minutes. And we'll sort of see how this goes. To kind of give you a context, uh, it's pretty important for me to have you understand a little bit about who I am. I met with Diane earlier. She was in Berkeley. I was born really close to Berkeley in a place called Santa Cruz. So knowing that background tells you a little bit about who I am, and I just want to illustrate how long it took me to get here. Uh, It's 16,000 kilometers. It's about 15 hours on an airplane from Los Angeles. It's a long way. Fortunately, I've had four or five days to kind of get balanced. I was in Melbourne prior to this doing some work, and I head to Darwin uh, tomorrow, actually, Someplace I've never been, so I'm pretty excited about going there to visit. So if you have any pointers about things I should do or not do, just put them on a piece of paper and send them to me. Uh, I live in a state called Connecticut. Who's been to Connecticut? Congratulations. That's good. Uh, Hartford is the capital. It's on the east coast of the United States. Those of you that don't know where Connecticut is and thought it was Kentucky, it's not the same. Um, It's near these cities. Many of you know those cities, which is why I like to show them. You've probably been to New York, you've probably been to D.C., or at least you know about it. Uh, I live about two hours away from New York City and about an hour and a half away from Boston. So I'm pretty located in a pretty nice place with respect to being on the East, uh, East Coast. This is the state of Connecticut. It's the third smallest state in the United States, which is uh, the state I currently live in now for the last 11 years, 12 years going. And stores, Connecticut is where the University of Connecticut is. It's the uh, largest uh, university, public university in the Northeast, uh, number one school, if you will, in teacher education there. And it's out at a farm. Uh, there are 26,000 students who live in dorms out <coughs> away from the city. So it's a very different kind of community, but a, a very nice university. Here's the School of Education. That's the building that I work in. And I'm in the basement in the back of the building. Uh, I think that's where they put special educators who work with children with behavior disorders. But that's where I spend most of my time, and that's where the, the center that I um, used to co direct and, and now somebody else directs and so forth are located. Um, happy to spend more time about Connecticut if you're interested. Um, what's been most important for you to know is that while I've been here in Australia, the Yukon women basketball team finally lost their streak of 111 games in a row, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, that's less important than what we're going to talk about, I guess. Um, Here are two websites that I want you to be familiar with, just because everything I know you can get at this site. If you click on presentations, these slides are there, so you can go there and just steal them. They're for free. Uh, You don't have to take notes unless you're OC and want to. Uh, It's really everything I'm going to share with you is at these two sites. The Northeast site is a, a more recent one. It's ten states that have formed a network in the Northeast, And we are working with schools to provide behavior supports, uh, positive climate work, and so forth. And there's a lot of practical information at both sites. If you're a student in the room and you're working on your literature review for your thesis, go to pbs.org, your literature review is done. Everything is there. Um, Just click on research, and you'll see all the sort of the publications that we've done and so forth. So just kind of giving you a little heads up on how you might be able to get through your program. All right. This is the park picture I've shown a number of times. In fact, I showed, last time I was in Sydney, I think it was 2011, I showed this picture then. It's a picture that I use frequently because it illustrates what I'm about. Um, I spend most of my time getting those kids out of the corner. These are children who misbehave, who violate local norms, who have social-emotional behavioral issues, who sometimes cause teachers and administrators and parents struggles on getting their education to be met. One thing we are very concerned about is the fact that we tend to get tough with these kids as a way to teach them not to misbehave any further. And the work that I do, the work that David Evans does, and others have demonstrated that punishment's not a very effective way of managing student behavior. And much of the rest of the time I'm going to spend with you is sort of what those alternatives look like. Because what we've learned is there's a person in this room teaching, teaching kids to read, teaching to do math, teaching to do history. And you can't teach effectively when you have to teach to the corner. And the message there is if kids aren't engaged, if we don't have their attention, if they don't have the social skills to navigate the classroom, if they can't problem solve, if they can't emotionally regulate, we're going to have a real hard time teaching. And one thing we've learned is that the academic and behavioral success of children go hand in hand. And one of the messages I'm going to end with and I'm going to have you think about now is how well do we prepare new teachers to handle the social climate of schools and classrooms? How well are teachers prepared to deal with some of the trauma, some of the things that kids bring with them to the classroom? And how well are we able to do that in the context of teaching reading, in the context of teaching math, and running our schools? I think it's a misrule that we've learned that schools are only about academics, because in truth, we're about both. Because if kids don't have the social emotional strength, they're not going to benefit from the academic instruction. And I think you have to think about both together if we're going to be successful. So that's sort of the message I want you to play with. The reason I've organized the presentation the way I have is built around this particular model. There's some work out of the University of Alberta, University of Chicago, and other places that have done a really nice job describing in general what are the three major places that influence student outcomes. And there's three major ones that affect how students benefit inside the classroom. One is school climate, what's it feel like to walk down the hallways, go to the lunchroom, play on the playground, go to sporting events, and so forth. The second one is classrooms, what happens inside the classroom settings, classroom management. Classroom management is really important place, and it also has to do with <coughs> instructional management. And the third area is what you all here do, what Diane does and others, about how do we prepare high-quality classroom teachers to be able to deliver instruction and to deliver effective, safe environments for students. Those three areas are the major places. And it's important to understand that school leadership is at the middle because that guides what happens school-wide, classroom-wide, and how well teachers are able to deliver what, what they've what they been trained to be able to do. But the three places that affect outcomes the most are, are those three places. And I'm going to tra- focus on school climate and classroom climate through the rest of the time. And I do that, be- I present this picture because I want to make sure that we think about you know, focusing on the most important factors that have the biggest effect on student outcomes. You'll notice that family and student background is out on the edge there. And there's not a lot of big impact of family and student on schools, but there is an impact on student learning. And that's an important thing to think about, and I'm going to reference student and enge- parent engagement a little bit more towards the middle of the presentation to have you think about that. All right. So those three, the three green block boxes are what I'm going to focus on. Many of you are in that middle box. So uh, every once in a while you'll see a slide with a check on it, a red check. That's wake up your neighbor, something important's happening. Uh, This is on the test. Uh, You'll need to turn it into David online by Monday at 5. These are the big ideas that I want you to walk away with. You can kind of ignore the rest of the content. It's just sort of set up. But these are the big things I want you to focus on, and that is much of the work that I do is around prevention. And that's preventing the development of problem behaviors, as well as preventing the occurrence of existing problems. How do we decrease the likelihood that children are going to misbehave in classrooms, even though they have a history of that? It's still a prevention problem. It's not a punishment issue. It's a prevention issue. I really admire you in the room, those of you that are educators, because you have kids 180 days a year, six hours a day, And you have more time with children to organize and to shape their academic and behavioral learning than sometimes parents do, and sometimes community does. And you have these kids for 12 years, sometimes more. And if you're in in the university, you have even more than that. And that's such an important responsibility. And that's why I want to focus on the social emotional learning side of what we do. The second big idea that I want you to walk away with is that, and much of it happens here at the university as well, is that we have a toolkit of evidence-based practices. Yes, we can grow that toolkit so that it's bigger, but I want us to make sure that we at least minimally invest in what we know are effective practices. And I'm going to try to share with you some of those practices. I'm going to show you the evidence behind them. Because schools are not a place where we want to test new interventions on kids. Schools are places we want to deliver the best interventions possible, the best instructional models possible because our, we have too much at stake in those six hours a day with our children, and it's really important that we stay close to those evidence-based practices, which is what I'm going to emphasize. And the last one, which is probably worth half the points on this particular essay question, is the systems component, which is how do we help the adults deliver those practices so that we can prevent the development of problem behavior? I spent most of my career working directly with children with emotional and behavioral challenges. That's sort of my area. I'm a sort of a school mental health person. I'm a special educator. I like to work with kids who have difficulties inside of schools and communities and families. But one thing I've realized is that it's so important to make sure that the adults have the tools, the capacity to deliver those interventions. And so I've spent probably the last half of my career focusing on the adults in those environments and helping them pr- provide delivery of those supports. So I know many of you in this room are learning those practices. Some of you in this room are actually studying those practices, but if the adults, the teachers, the paraprofessionals, the the headmasters and so forth, don't have the opportunity and capacity to deliver, then students won't benefit from those experiences. So the systems component has become much more important to me, even though it's sort of boring when you think about how how we study schools. All right, another red check. This is going to be a question on the final. It says, draw George's big idea. Right? If there's one picture that delivers, what I'm going to spend the rest of my time on is this picture. And some of it I've already covered. But I want to suggest to you that academic success or failure, behavior success or failure, go together. That when kids have behavior failure in classrooms and schools, it interferes with their academic success. When students experience academic failure, it also affects their emotional and behavioral status as well. And kids tell us through their behavior when they're frustrated at school. Kids tell us through their behavior when they're being bullied and intimidated too much. And we know that those two go hand in hand. And I'll kind of illustrate that for you. So it's important when you draw this picture for me on on the essay question number seven that you show that arrow between the two, that it's a two-headed arrow because it goes both ways. I also want to suggest to you that the success children experience or the failure they experience affects the climate of the school and affects the climate of the classroom. If children are frustrated, if adults are frustrated because children aren't learning or they can't deliver the practices, then those environments tend to be labeled as negative climates. And I want to suggest to you that we have control over those climates because we have our finger on the thermostat called academic success or failure and that we, they go together. And climate's an important component that we need to study when we think about schools. And the last one is, which is sort of hard to see, but behind it, there's a continuum of supports. And what we've learned also is that you can't just deliver practices uh, randomly or in shoeboxes or in binders. That you actually have to organize your interventions in order for them to have the biggest effect across classrooms and schools. And that's what we call multi-tiered systems. So to recap, climate's a big deal because it reflects what happens with children and, and teachers. And what happens with teachers and adults affects climate. So we have to focus on what the climate of the the class school and climate of the building looks like. It's also important to remember that climate is a sense, but it's something we actually have control over because it's based on what we do and what kids experience. And lastly, you have to have a continuum of supports in place in order for us to deliver the most positive climates. So the big message here is academic behavior go together. It affects climate. Climate affects learning and the way to affect climate is to make sure we organize how we deliver the best instructional practices as well as the best behavioral practices. Now, that's sort of boring and sort of common commonsensical. Sen- we know what that means. I'm going to spend the rest of the time kind of unpacking that a little bit as we go. If you understand this now, you may leave now because I'm just going to spend more time on it as we go. Okay. So first, before I start, I just need to give you a uh, – what's that called? A infomercial – a kind of a, you know, a um, non-profit advertisement, something that I think is pretty important to me and some of you don't care about, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's pretty important to me in the work that I do. Um, when November 6th, November 8th happened in the United States, there was significant climate change in the United States. Um, and as a result of that, schools having been experiencing the effect of that climate change. You all know what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm trying to be apolitical here. You know, I'm not. Supposed, I'm I'm okay. Um, one of the big grants that I have is paid for by the U.S. Department of Education. I'm supposed to say be neutral, so I didn't say the T word at all. All right. But we're worried about schools, and we're worried about what's happening in schools because of the following. Prior to November 6th, we were doing quite a bit of work and having a pretty big impact on disproportionality and school violence. And issues around climate and issues around disability and so forth and LGBTQ things and so forth. We're doing some pretty cool things and making some pretty significant progress. And putting in place uh, strategies that affect climate in a pretty significant manner. But after November 6th and 8th, things changed in our schools. And that's where I'm going to focus. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a large group in the southern part of the United States, did a national survey just about a week after the election. They interviewed 10,000 educators, and they said, what happened in your schools after the election? And what they found across those (laughs) 10,000 educators is significant disruption, concern about kids, concern about climate, concern about safety, concern about what's happening with respect to how people are treating each other. And just to give you a personal example, my wife is an ex-principal. She retired about four years ago. Right now, she's a, re- a literacy coach inside a school in Hartford, Connecticut. Two days after the election, a year two student came up to her and said to her, tears coming down her eyes, saying, Ms. Fernandez, am I going to be able to come back to school tomorrow? Her family is Mexican. They're immigrants into the Connecticut, and she's worried about whether or not she's going to be able to stay in the school. A friend of mine, Steve Goodman, who lives in Michigan, he, had a, he, t- he sent me an email because we were preparing a paper around this, He was saying to me that in one of the high school secondary settings, a group of students sat down across the hallway and linked their arms together, and as some Muslim kids were approaching the kids, they said, we are the wall, you can't pass. Now, this is the United States where this is happening, and the reason I'm sharing this with you is because some of the international work we are learning, unfortunately, the Trump's, the T-stuff is (laughs) transferring across, And we're really concerned about that. And schools are saying, what do we do? We need a T intervention. And we're saying there is no such thing as a T intervention yet, right? (laughs) But there are some things you can do. And what we're going to argue is everything I'm going to share with you for the rest of the time are things that we can do, all right? Um, Just on the right-hand side are some of the things that were mentioned during those surveys. Deportation was one of the biggest ones. You know, it's the wall and so forth. And I know that uh, many countries are dealing with issues around immigration and and people escaping places that are not very safe places to be. Um, In that interview, they're they're focusing on derogatory language and hate crimes and so forth, and things that are pretty significant for us. And I won't go through those necessarily, but I'll have you look at them later. It's pretty important for you to know, and I'm going to go through these, and this shouldn't mean that you shouldn't come to the United States. It's still a good place to come. (laughs) But on the other hand, also learned that the number of anti-government groups have increased. Uh, These are called uh, patriot groups, but they're really kind of code words for we don't like you because. And so we're really pretty concerned about them becoming much more prominent. Uh, Do you all know what the KKK is, the Ku Klux Klan? Yeah. Yeah. So people like me people of color are really worried about them. Right now there are 190 KKK groups that have renewed their license. They're actually become much more visible in the United States. They're holding meetings and so forth. And the anti-Muslim increase uh, has been significant for us. And it's it's a pretty dramatic change in the climates of the buildings. And again, I don't mean to say to you that, again, you shouldn't come to visit us. Just make sure you have your passport. But at the same time, it's pretty important to know that things are a little bit different there. 21% of the hate crimes increases are happening inside of schools. So some of you in this room I know are focused on trauma-informed interventions. Some of you are are involved in restorative practices. Some of you are involved in school mental health. Those areas are pretty important areas to think about when you think about the kinds of things that are happening. Most of those are focusing on people who are different, visually different or behave differently or present differently. There are 917 hate groups across the United States. These are the ones we know about. Right, And by the way, even though it looks like North Dakota is a safe place, I know about North Dakota, and not quite sure there's only one hate group there, but that's one of those that are kind of public, if you will. So, red check mark, these are things that I'd encourage you to look at. If you go to PBS.org, and the left-hand side it says, what's new? We've highlighted some documents for parents, for teachers, community members, and others. We're, we're, there's nothing new there that's a Trump T inter, intervention, but there is a set of interventions There are st- suggestions there about what you can do more of to help children and families feel safer in schools. And I'm convinced that's true here in Australia, New Zealand, the work we're doing in Spain, the work we're doing in the Caribbean. All of those places are being affected, unfortunately, by what we're doing. And I want to encourage you to take a look at these places because... There's information there about supporting families. We have a new school mental health uh, e-book that's free, draw it down, called Family Engagement, uh, written by Mark Weiss and Lucille Eber. A dynamite resource for you if you're interested in supporting families. There's a bunch of work on school climate that Tamika LaSalle and others have been focusing on. And on the right-hand side, there's some focus on hate crimes and bullying and so forth. Again, there's nothing new, really, except there's a renewed interest and trying to make sure we do a better job of implementing those practices. We've learned that you can't do it informally. You've got to be much more deliberate in supporting kids and families inside of schools. And we're pretty concerned about what's been happening and so forth. It's really problematic when our national government models what we don't want to occur inside our schools. And we're trying to help kids understand about truth, respect, and responsibility, and safety when we're not seeing those same models being portrayed on TV and other places. So again, I'm painting a negative picture on purpose to some extent, but I want you to remember that we do have some interventions that are effective, and especially schools are a great place to put those in place. All right, end of paid commercial. <laughs> um, turn off. Kind of. I just want to now move into some of the things that are important for us to think about as we move this forward. We've been spending quite a bit of time now, just because of what's been happening nationally and things that have been happening over the last 10 years in the United States around discrimination around equity and so forth. And I just want to spend uh, about five minutes on this topic and to suggest to you that culture is a big deal. It affects climate. It affects our ability to teach, It affects our ability for students to learn. So I want you to look at this picture. How many of you in this room are school administrators, headmasters, or think you are? All right, good. <laughs> That's you over there on the left-hand side. I think it looks like you're smoking a pipe or a bong or something. <laughs> but I know the job's tough. But that's you. And there are three kids who have been sent to the office, and these kids have been sent to the office for misbehavior inside the classroom. So I need to translate some of these lang- this language for you, because I know it's different here in Australia than it is in the United States. But one kid on the left has been sent to the office for using the SHIT word. The kid in the middle has been sent to the office for using the F-U-C-K word. And the kid on the right has been sent to the office for using the word Christmas in class. And I want you to think about, if you were the classroom teacher, what is it about your experiences, your learning history, your approach to management, your understanding of differences caused you to respond to those behaviors the way they did? Because we know, you know, that the S H I T F U C K word can be used as a slip or it could be used as a point at somebody. And because of that, it has a different meaning on different people, it has a different impact on the people using it, and so forth. Now, don't let it leave this room, turn off the tape. Last week, I was in Melbourne, and I was working with a Catholic education group. So the last one was a little bit touchy. I wasn't quite sure how to handle that one. But we have people who are bring their personal beliefs into the classroom, and they respond to their personal beliefs. And I just use Christmas as an example, but it could be anything, right? And you might want to think about you know How do we respond? I think it's true here. In the United States, that kid in the middle, if you're a male student, if you're a kid of color, aboriginal, indigenous, black, African-American in the United States, and you have a disability, you're six to eight times more likely to be sitting on that bench for the same behavior. So something's going on there with respect to these communities. Because each of us in this room come with a set of expectations and experiences that affects how we respond right to different kinds of interactions. And we've got to make sure that we understand what the norms mean as we think about schools. That's particularly important when we think about climate. It's particularly important when we think about how we respond to kids who misbehave, who run away, who cry easily, and how we interpret those behaviors. Do we call it intentional and we call it misbehavior and conduct, or do we think, it as, think of it as an example of a social, a school mental health issue and so forth? How do we think about what happens and how are we treating those particular behaviors? So I want you to think about that as you move forward. Because each of you in this room have a different learning history. I was telling Diane earlier. I was born. How many of you have been to Santa Cruz, California? How many of you know the Beach Boys? Yeah. All right. That's where I was born. I'm a third-generation Japanese American. My parents were born in Watsonville. How many of you know where Watsonville is? How many of you have ever eaten a wa- uh, an artichoke before? Artichokes are grown in Watsonville. It's right near the artichoke capital of the world is, is in Watsonville, or near there. right? Um, I'm off task. Oh, Watsonville, Okay. So my parents are born in Watsonville. They're a second-generation Japanese Americans. My grandparents came over from Japan. So when people look at me, there's a, some in, initial interpretation or a thought about how to respond. But then, as soon as I open my mouth, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God! You know, he's in California. That's why he talks that way, or what have you. So it's pretty important to kind of think about this. Something is pretty important. So sort of, I'm getting a little personal over on this right, left-hand side now is that right now, all this anti-Muslim stuff and gathering Muslims together and so forth and so on has brought together the Japanese-American community again. Because in 1942, my mother and my parents were interned because they were Japanese-Americans after World War II. And my mother spent two years, what I call prison, they were called relocation camps, behind barbed wire in the deserts of Arizona. And she graduated behind barbed wire in high school from an internment camp because she was Japanese. She had an American birth certificate, just like Obama did. She had, she had, she had. And because of her color of her skin and her race, or her background, she was in prison. That has become part of the conversation now in the United States. And are we going to go back to those kinds of reactions and so forth? And we have kids, like my wife's experience, who are responding to that. So it's not about equality. It's about equity. Equality means we give everybody the same thing. But when you give everybody the same thing, it doesn't mean they can all benefit from that experience. If you look carefully at that picture, it says, we're going to make this test fair. Everybody's going to get the same test, right? And if you're in the world of special learners, disabilities, and so forth, you know that not everybody gets access to success if it's equal because you don't have the ability to respond in the same way because the test item is climb the tree. And there's no way some of those individuals are going to be able to do that just because of who they bring, what they bring to those settings. So it's pretty important for us to remember that equality and equity in the world of climate and behavior are different. They're separate. Equality is this picture. It means we give the same thing to everybody. right? But it doesn't allow them to get equal access to the benefits of an educational experience. Equity has to do with making sure. Now, my world, David's world, is around kids with disability. We work with kids who can't read, kids who can't problem solve, kids who can't navigate the social norms of schools and classrooms. They're going to fail if the norms don't accommodate differences. Kids with autism come with a different set of social skills and the capacity to navigate those environments. If we don't change those environments to give kids access to what everybody else has access to, success, they're not going to get access to the benefits of the school environment. Not here in Australia, but in the United States, we struggle with the following picture, which is the haves get more. And unfortunately, the T effect is having an effect here as well, because we have a government now This I should be careful what I say, right? But the government now where the wealthy are getting wealthier and the wealthy are getting more which is pretty important for us to kind of think about, at least in the United States anyway. And the reality is something that people like myself and David Evans and others are continually competing against. Okay, let me pass this by because of time. You can look at this later. So I'm going to move into some interventions, some strategies, some thoughts about how that works. But the first thing I want you to think about is what do we mean by evidence-based? And don't look at the little words. Just be impressed by the number of words that are up there we looked at all the definitions not all we looked at a lot of the definitions of what do we mean by empirically based or evidence based interventions or programs or curriculum or whatever and there's a lot of definitions that come out of council for exceptional children special education a lot of different definitions what we've learned is across those three definitions or many definitions there are three critical features that define an evidence based practice when you have to select one so for me, the number one thing is you've got to start with something you know has a high likelihood of producing the effect that you want With a big enough size that it's meaningful. We again, like I mentioned at the very beginning, schools are not places to test things on kids. These are places where we want to make sure they get access to the best. It's like when you go to the doctor, you want to make sure that you have access to the best best surgeons, the best hospital, the best technology, in order for you to get your needs met. It's not that funny. because <laughs> because the outcome is so important. The same thing is true of our kids. If they don't learn to read, if they don't learn to learn, if they don't learn their history, if they don't learn mathematics, if they don't learn those essential skills for success, they're going to have a difficult time. It is really important that we start with what we know works. However. Just because David Evans says there's a study for it doesn't mean that it's right for your kids. And there are two important criteria that are oftentimes missed across those definitions. One of them says, it's got to be right for my kid. Because many of those studies that have been done have been done on a certain population of students, maybe not your kid. I'm a real fan of CBT uh, cognitive behavior therapies. I'm a real fan of the good behavior game. I'm a real fan of phonics-based and coding-based literacy programs. I know that those are important, but I know that they don't work for all kids, and that sometimes we have to make adjustments to them for for them to work. And the third one is culture, and that's what I'm guilty of here presenting to you. I'm presenting to you content not knowing as much as I should know about Australia and its culture and all the different groups that that make up the Australian culture. David and Diane told me just about an hour ago that there are different Australian accents. I had no idea that there were different (laughs) Australian accents. I can't tell one from the other. and I can't understand one from, you know, but now I understand there are some nuances between them. That cultural difference is a big deal. I was down in, in Melbourne. We're doing, um, helping the, the Department of Education down there work on a pilot study, working with the Koori um, cultures in four or five schools and how do we build in school climate and Koori values and bring elders into the system and so forth. It's really neat because they're using evidence-based interventions to work with the kids, but they're modifying the interventions based on the local context or culture, and they're adapting it for elementary versus high school and adjusting to students. So I'm going to encourage you to use evidence-based practices. I'm going to encourage you that the word I'm going to finish off with are those evidence-based practices, but you should always be skeptical of people like me because even though I say they're evidence-based, you have to know whether or not they match the needs of your place where you work and live. Because if they don't match up, it's going to fail. All right? And you should always be questioning people like me and David all the time. Show me the evidence. And then you've got to ask, is it applicable across settings? What I'm going to share with you for the rest of the time, we're testing out and across a number of different cultures. We're doing this work now in South Africa, the Netherlands, a little bit in Spain, a little bit in, in the Asian Pacific um, Rim, and so forth. It's pretty neat to see how the big ideas are being translated to affect these different cultures. If you connect with Diane, she's got some money for you. She'll send you to Jamaica <laughs> to go visit some of these schools and see what it really looks like and so forth. So, But it's pretty exciting to see how it works, and I'll give you some examples in a second. All right. So a little bit of boring stuff first, and that is I need to make sure that you all understand what PBIS is and what multi-tiered systems are. PBIS is something that I do. It started 18 years ago when the U.S. Department of Education said, form a center, name it the PBIS center. It's nothing special. It's just a name that Congress gave to this center. But what we did is organized a lot of interventions within this center. In the last couple years, there's been a push for something called multi-tiered systems. And multi-tiered systems is just a framework that allows us to organize interventions. And PBIS is an example of one of those initiatives under the MTSS umbrella. And I'll share what I mean by that. If you know about RTI, response to intervention, it's another example of multi-tiered systems. So this picture, it represents what I do, which is right there. And there's lots of different tiered systems that are being implemented across internationally now. I don't know. I can't speak to what's happening around here. But the multi-tiered framework is a way to improve the efficiency of the decisions we make around interventions, which I'll share with you next. But there are a lot of different terms there. Schoolwide PBS is what's being used around Victoria. Um, PBIS has been used a lot of our... I've got two PBISs there. Uh, we're twice as good. Uh, that's a mistake. It should be PBS or um, as another kind of uh, language. Uh, RTI, Interconnected Systems Framework, those are all multi-tiered systems, and they all represent the same thing. Um, so I just want you to kind of de- demystify what it is, and it's not a big deal. But there will be an item on the test. <laughs> And it's a fill-in-the-blank item. And the first blank is worth half the points because it's so important. I want you to walk away tonight. If nothing else, if you remember nothing else, that is that PBIS is not an intervention. Not an intervention. PBIS is a framework. It's an approach. It's a process. All right? We do not PBIS kids. We PBIS systems. I would estimate that at least monthly at our national center that I run, we get an email that runs something like this. I am a teacher. I have a student. She, on a daily best basis, she kicks me in the ankle. Please help me. Would you please PBIS her, please? And the answer is there's no PBIS intervention for ankle kicking. <laughs> PBIS is the system we put in place for people to pick the best intervention for ankle kicking. And that's important for you to remember because... I'm bragging, PBIS has become fairly successful or widespread in the United States, and people continue to miss the misrule that it's an intervention. It's not an intervention, it's a framework. What does that framework do? It organizes things into a continuum, which I'll share with you in the next picture. And even though George is known as the behavior guy, we are very concerned about the link to the academic side of the triangle or the world. And we do this with all kids. Most of the time, people come to me and say, I've got this kid who ankle kicks, fix him or her, which is what I've done in the past. But what I've learned is that it's much more about working with all kids in order to work with a few. And that's one of the messages I want you to think about. So it's most important that you remember PBIS is not a curriculum. It's a good job. David has taught me that you got to practice and get some formal responses back. We'll do this again at the end, maybe. All right. And these are what the shared practices are that make up the multi-tiered framework, or PBIS. We do universal screening. We check to see how our kids are doing on a regular basis. We do continuous progress monitoring. We check to see how kids are doing on a daily basis. We make sure that we have the best evidence-based practices. We work as teams. We make sure that we check for fidelity of implementation. Those are the core features of multi-tiered systems. Those are the core features of what David Evans does in early literacy. Those are the core features of what I do in behavior. There's nothing special about them. We know what many of those are. They've been well-researched. All we've done is said you've got to organize them under an umbrella called multi-tiered systems. Some of you in this room are graduate students and you are doing dissertations and theses that have to do with refining some of those practices around that circle. Some of you are in schools, and every year you do a screening of your children to find out how well they're reading. You're doing universal screening. Some of you do uh, different kinds of progress monitoring as a way to check on how your children are doing. Those are all multi-tiered systems practices. We put them all together. All right. Red Red check, wake up your neighbor. These are the tools for making these features work. All right, and it's on the test. So I'm going to say to you, if you're going to put a multi-tiered system in place in your classroom, what are the four most important elements to consider? And I'm going to say to you, the most important one, of kid- course, is kid outcomes. We want to know where we're going with kids, and we need to make sure we're clear about what it looks like. We want to make sure that we know what's most important for our kids in our classrooms, in our schools, in our grade levels, and so forth. That's what tests are for. That's what our instruction's about. But To make the wisest decisions, we need to have information. And that information tells us what interventions to pick. And the adults have to be competent. The Sydney School of Education is all about preparing people to be able to implement evidence-based practices with the highest degree of fidelity and to use data to know whether or not that's working or not. When the decisions are important, kid outcomes are important, kid benefit is 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 a big deal we have to pay attention to those three three in the middle because without that information, we can't pick the best outcomes, know whether or not we're getting there, and pick the best interventions to try to shape those. If you go to the doctor because you need a valve replaced on your heart, you want to make sure that you know what the odds are of your dying or not on the table, the outcome. You want to make sure that they collect data on the amount of blockage the amount of flap movement or not, the amount of flow through your valve. you want data to inform the surgeon. You want to make sure they have the best interventions, the best technology available, and you want to make sure that that surgeon is not shaking. Because if the surgeon is shaking, that best the best intervention is going to fail, even if you have the data. Schools, to me, are just like heart surgery. Kids have to benefit, and the outcome is so important that we cannot leave decisions up to chance, we have to have information, practices, and good systems. I flew, what did I say, 10,000 kilometers to get here. When I get on a plane, the first thing I do is look to the left. I make sure that the pilot is doing his or her checklists, collecting data. I want to make sure that he knows where we're going. I'm going to Sydney. I'm not going to Darwin right? I want to make sure the outcome is clear, and I want to make sure the pilot has sitting next to her at least three cups of coffee, because I do not want you falling asleep while we're flying that plane. We look for all four elements when the outcome is important. Do we do the same thing for kids? Becomes the the question for you, right? So, let me pass this by. Now, (laughs) I want you to think about this picture, because this is going to suggest to you a little bit about what we mean by a continuum of supports, right? That phone number will not work because I took it in Perth when I was visiting in Fremantle a while back. So it's a graffiti hotline sign. Some of you know what that sign is for, right? It's to inhibit graffiti writing. So I was walking to the conference center right down in Perth, at right, the convention center there. And underneath this bridge, I saw this sign. So I took it because all the walls had graffiti on them. <laughs> so why did they put the sign up? To inhibit graffiti writing. What's on the sign? Oops, right? So we have this sign that's put up to inhibit graffiti writing, and then David Evans sees that sign and says, oh my gosh, empty canvas, and starts doing graffiti. (laughs) We have a mismatch between the intervention and the outcome we're trying to achieve. Now you could argue, and I would agree with you, that that sign is there for the other kids who are thinking about graffiti writing. But the reason they put the sign up is not for those kids, it's for the kids who are the chronic graffiti writers because it's a problem. Agreed? This is Western Australia, not here, so you don't have that issue here, right? It's Western Australia. So it works like this, and part of the story is true. David can back me up on this. My daughter would walk by this sign, and she wouldn't even pay attention because art is not her thing, not her thing. She doesn't know how to do graffiti. She wouldn't know what to do and so forth and so on. She might date somebody who's a graffiti writer, but she would not know how to do it herself. (laughs) That sign has no effect, and if she was thinking about it, she'd probably stop. My wife's son, he would walk by this sign, and he's an artist, honest, true, went to college to be an artist, cost a lot of money, he's trying to be an artist. He would see this sign, and he would pull out his magic markers with a wide tip on them and think about it. He would think about it. But because he's my wife's son, he would put the cap back on and keep walking. (laughs) Betsy and I decided not to have the third child, because the third (laughs) child would be the one who would, right? (laughs) Now, the reason that's an important kind of picture is because that's what schools are about. And it works like this. I think it's true here. In fact, I know it's true. In the United States, we have the functional equivalent to to the graffiti hotline sign. It's called the Code of Conduct or the discipline handbook or the behavior code or whatever you have. It's that 34-page document, single space, size 3 font that defines every possible rule violation and every consequence that goes with each one of those rule violations and required reading for every student and parent. And it defines everything they shouldn't do. It is the functional equivalent of the graffiti hotline because it's there for everybody But the kids for whom you're worried about, which is why you came to this session, are the kids who write on the handbook because it's not set up for them. So loss of inhibitions and some of these things that have always been behind the scenes are becoming much more visible. For example, hate groups have become much more emboldened and their websites have become much more prominent. Their meetings have become much more significant and so forth. We've all booked. She never cracked it open because she's my daughter right? True, sort of. My son, excuse me, take that back. My wife's son (laughs) had three discipline referrals, trips to the office for skipping school. He cut out of school three times and got caught, right? Got caught. And so what happens? You get in trouble when you skip school in the United States. And so he got, which is odd, he got caught for skipping school. And what do you do? You suspend him for two days. (laughs) Remember, talk about a mismatch, right? But it took him three times to figure out, don't do that again. He stopped. Which is, again, the reason we didn't have that third child. (laughs) Because that would be the kid with the 15, 16, 17 trips to the office. Because what do we do? We throw the code of conduct at the kid to say, wake up, read the code. But it's a mismatch between the intervention and the need of the kid. I'm not excusing the behavior. I'm not saying, you know, that's okay. I'm just saying we have a mismatch between the intervention and the intensity of the problem being addressed. There's a functional equivalent to that in the academic world as well. Can't read? Just read more. right? And we have this problem that says use the basal and keep reading the basal when in fact they need something extra. So I want you to think about how this applies across different contexts as well. All right. So that's a long way of saying that what we've done in the world of behavior is we've put together behavior management systems, we've put together school climate discipline systems, but they tend to be one-dimensional. What we've been trying to do is focus on building tiered systems. How many of you have seen pictures like this before? Uh, I know you're tired of them, right? (laughs) The triangle is the way we think about a continuum. And it organizes the graffiti hotline logic in the following way. The graffiti hotline sign is that bar on the left-hand side. The code of conduct is that bar on the left-hand side. I forgot to ask, am I speaking too loudly or not loudly enough? Just right. (laughs) Okay. You're all so polite. Nobody interrupted. Okay. Just throw something at me if I don't speak loudly enough, I say something inappropriate, it's okay. Let me know, I need to that. All right, triangle. Tier one, universal intervention, is what we have to have for everybody. But there are some individuals who need a little extra, and there are some individuals who need much more, more intense interventions. And the goal here is to capture as many kids as possible in tier one so we can deliver the intensive interventions for those kids who need a little extra. I oftentimes get called to schools to do Tier 3 interventions, but there's so much chaos in the classroom, there's no way that Tier 3 intervention is going to work because Tier 1 is not in place. You've got to have both, which is sort of the logic here. All right, so bear with me. Raise your hand. It's okay when you answer the question. Nothing's going to happen. I'm not going to point at you. We'll turn off the camera and so forth. All right, but just kind of answer three questions for me. How many of you in this room set an alarm clock this morning to get to wherever you needed to be this morning on time? Great. How many of you set two alarms on your smartphone in case you slept through the first one? Thank you. How many of you set that second alarm clock across the room to force you to get up? All right, thank you. How many of you live with, married, or have a partner who's your alarm clock? Thank you. How many of you called your mother last night and said, Mom, call me. I need to make sure I get up on time? All right. Now, that's the triangle. Most of you do pretty well with one alarm clock. In fact, you turn it off before it even goes off. Some of you are smart enough to know that you need a second one because you turn the first one off and you wait for the second one. And some of you married your alarm clock because you know you need something to more, more intense to provide that support. Now, David has told me this is true, and I believe it. He said you all are very competent adults, that you are very good at self-regulating and self-managing. You can organize your environment for success. Marry your alarm clock, right? The kids that I work with are not very good at organizing their environment for success in ways that are acceptable to that particular culture or place. They manage their anger by hitting. It works really well. Problem is that hitting is not the way to manage anger in school. So we've got this problem of kids doing some things, managing the way that the best they can, but they're not doing it in ways that are successful. Much of the work I'm about Is how do we create environments where kids understand what's okay and not okay in certain environments? And how do we appreciate what they do, but at the same time to teach them when it's okay, not okay. Now, the fascinating thing is, just to go off task for a second, I've been here for what, 45 minutes or so, I've mingled with some of you out in the hallway, I walked on the streets of Sydney this morning. I haven't heard the F-word once. You are very good self-managers, right? (laughs) But I know that at 7 o'clock, if we were in a local tavern, and your football team is losing, and your football team has just been scored against, the likelihood of hearing Diane say the F word increases dramatically. <laughs> increases dramatically. But she knows when it's OK, not OK. If I was to go to church with you, it's unlikely, that I, maybe, that i hear the F word, right? But I know that if I'm on the street, somebody cuts you off, and so forth and so on, it increases. You all are competent adults. You know when to do it, not do it. The kids I work with, they also have strategies, but they haven't learned that line between when it's it's okay, not okay. Again, I'm not endorsing the F word, right? I'm I'm suggesting you there are different ways we do things. All right. The truth is, the 3 tiered triangle is a way of organizing how we think. But if there's no truth to three, you could have two, you could have seven, you could have 27. I wouldn't recommend it, but it's a continuum. Right, and we organize our interventions along that continuum. But before I show you how to organize those interventions, one thing I'd like you to think about, and this is to help you, this is—do I have a check up here? There should be two checks. <clears throat> I want you to walk away from today, one knowing that PBIS is a—oh my gosh, you forgot already—framework, <laughs> and second of all, we do not label people by tiers. There's no such thing as a tier three kid. There's no such thing as a Tier 1 kid. There's no such thing as a Tier 3 parent. There's no such thing as a Tier 1 parent. There are kids with Tier 3 needs. There are adults with Tier 1 needs, and so forth and so on. Look at this kid. Her name's Theora. She has a profile. She has. She's in general education. She's not in special ed. She doesn't have a disability. She's my daughter. That's my daughter. right? In secondary school, we got her one-on-one tutoring for math and science. She needed more, and so she got Tier 3 support. Is she a Tier 3 student? No. She has Tier 3 needs in where? Math and science. She's getting Tier 3 interventions, one-on-one tutoring, and so forth. But she does these other things really well. Is she a Tier 1 kid? No. She's a kid, but she has these particular needs. Here is a student who is in special education, has serious emotional behavioral disorders, on his IEP, Individualized Education Plan, you have something similar here. He's got two objectives that he's working on, anger management and problem-solving. He's getting Tier 3 supports for those two areas. Those are the areas of support that he gets. But he does really well on these other areas. Is he a Tier 3 kid? No. Right? But he's getting Tier 3 supports in those areas. It's really important that we not pigeonhole kids, or teachers, or principals we all have needs. Not you in this room, you're all probably in the green area, but we all have areas for which we need to focus on. Here's my wife, Betsy's profile of me. <laughs> I was recently in Taiwan. I can't speak Mandarin, Mandarin, Mandarin. I can't speak Chinese. I'm really bad. I needed one-on-one. I was presenting. I had an interpreter standing next to me. I got tier three supports for Taiwanese. I am a researcher. I couldn't Get myself out of brown paper bag if somebody said calculate, the do an HLM on this data set. I couldn't do it. You give me the results, I can interpret the results. I need a group around me, group support, right, to do high-end kinds of statistics. I need tier two supports in that area. My wife tells me that I don't express my emotions enough. <laughs> That's debatable, right? Right. But she thinks I need Tier 2 supports for that, wants me to go to group. No, she doesn't. But I keep telling her I am not a Tier 3 husband. Look at all the things I do well. I love to ride bicycles, I play, you know, so forth and so on. Your homework assignment, I know you didn't think you had homework, but you need to turn this on to David on Friday, or on Monday, I mean, is that you need to do a profile on yourself as a student, as a teacher, as a school leader, as a school psychologist. What are the areas that you have to work together as a team? What are areas that you can do blindfolded? What are areas that you need a, a script to work from? Because we all, well, I think you all have areas of need and areas that you do really well in. If you're filling this out and you can't identify anything for the top, just ask your per- person you live with. They will tell you what goes in those top ones. But you've got to always balance that out with the things that are at the bottom. Now, I'm teasing a little bit, but remember I talked about culture and I talked about student fit. And I talked about how important it is to treat kids as human beings and that we're addressing their needs and this is trying a way to get there. We actually use this with kids in schools. We ask kids fill bless you we ask kids to fill this out on themselves. what are some areas that you believe you need some help in in school? what are some areas that you do really well and what we find is most kids have some areas they're really good at. It's just that we don't give them a chance to kind of highlight those which is sort of the area. All right so moving forward here's a check on it wake up your neighbor this is on the test. So what is the major point of the triangle? Yeah, we don't want to label kids. I understand that part. But the triangle is a logic that says you got to make sure that tier one's in place in order to do tier two and tier three. It doesn't mean you can't do high-intensive supports. It just means that it's harder to do it because the outcomes are more important because the data you collect is more frequent and much more individualized because the interventions you put in place are more individualized and require more time and attention. You have to do it every day as opposed to once a month. The systems that are in place require a team of individuals to work with kids with high needs. The triangle logic basically says, you know, you've got to pay attention to all kids in order to work with a few, because the few that need that high-intensity supports have to have a climate or or culture in which those high-end interventions are possible. I do most of my work now in schools and classrooms where tier one is missing. But they call me to work with tier three interventions. And there's a mismatch between those, which is sort of the logic here. Now, I'm focusing on behavior. same thing is true of academics, or literacy, math, calculus. Same kind of logic applies. And I want us to kind of think about how classroom management is part of that as well. All right? So it takes more. takes more to do the step at the top. But in order for for us to be able to deliver that, tier one's got to be in place. So if you're a a general ed classroom teacher, 30 kids in your classroom, it's important that you have something in place for all 30 of your kids because you're going to have that one kid who's going to need something extra or two or three even. And that's going to change based on literacy or math or whatever because your kids are going to have different strengths based on their profiles. All right. So David said I had to show some data, so I'm going to show a little bit of data because I want to make sure you understand how the triangle looks when you look at data. And I'll do this pretty quickly. One's a behavior example. The second one's a literacy example, just to kind of arrange and also to brag a little bit about the literacy one. But these are data from our data set at the University of Oregon uh, because Oregon is the the major site for our center. And we have three uh, uh, co-directors, myself at Connecticut and Tim Lewis in Missouri. In our data set, we have almost 3,000 elementary schools. We have about 900, which is grades five, years 5 through 8 or 9, and the 390 secondary settings, years 9 through 12. Right? So a lot of kids in those data sets. These are schools that are PBIS schools. They've been doing PBIS. It's tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3, and so forth. In those schools that are doing PBIS at least for 2 to 3 years, we find that 84% of the students have had zero or one major behavior infraction. 84% of the kids have had zero or one. So that's my daughter, right? One or none. 11% of the kids have two to five. That's my wife's son, right? Two to five. Took them a little bit to figure it out. Needed a little extra help. And then there are about 4.7% of the kids who have six or more behavioral events. These are kids with high needs in the social-emotional behavioral arena. These are schools that are working well. They still have that profile. And it's, I have no data to back this up. Somebody needs to do this study. So those of you that are students, think about this. Or if you're a faculty member here and want a study to do. I'm really curious about this sort of phenomena When you have 30 kids in your classroom and you have David. David misbehaves, talks out, noncompliant, runs away, cries easily. He's that one kid that dominates my time. He moves away. I am so excited. Right? Now I've got 29 kids and David's gone. But you know what? Diane steps into that role <laughs> and she takes over that position because now's her chance to be able to, well, you know, and so forth. There's some, some Darwinian thing, evolutionary something, that causes the kid who leaves to be replaced by somebody else. It, I don't know how that works, but it always, so what that means to me is you have to have something in place always to be able to support the needs of kids. Sometimes they're not as neat, as intense as other places, but you've got to pay attention to that. So the big point is... The reason why this is a big deal, because those of you that are school administrators that I identified later, you know who those kids are at the top. That 16% of kids you know really well. You know their student ID number by heart. You know the mom's cell phone number by heart, because you have so many interactions with the kid and the family. You know the mom's secret cell phone number by heart, because of what goes on between you and the family and the child. Because they account for 79% of the behavioral activity in the school. Say it again. 16% of the students, this little corner, accounts for 80%. What is that? Not 70%. Whatever it is. 79% of the action in the school. These are busy kids. They demand our attention, and we have to deliver interventions that are high intensity. My world that I started out in is working with those kids right here and delivering those interventions. But I spend more of my last half of my career focusing on how do we get that green triangle big so that we can deliver those kids the service that they need at the top because of the intensity of the supports. Do you get the triangle logic now? All right. This is to encourage you to become teachers, not to discourage you, right? (laughs) So this is cool, and I'm a behavior guy, but I love this literacy data. A colleague of mine, Mike Coyne, who David knows, who's at the University of Connecticut, he and I have a contract with the state of Connecticut. We have a contract to work with the the 20 or so lowest functioning schools in literacy in the state, which also happen to be the lowest behavior functioning schools. And this is an early literacy project. It's called called Kindergarten Through Year Three, called CK3LI, Connecticut Kindergarten Through Third Grade Literacy Initiative. We were given a chunk of money to to demonstrate, can we change these schools around? These are the decades of not reading. So we said, we'll take it on, right? We'll deliver. So what we did is we went into these schools, and we – do you all know what, what uh, curriculum-based measurement systems are, like Dibbles or AmesWeb or sort of? So when you measure kids with really short samples and you get an idea about what their, uh, what their reading's like, we dibbled, which is a, a method or system, 2,600 kids, or whatever number the kids are. And this is what we learned. And these are kids in schools that are, have the lowest. There are about a third of the kids who are going to read, regardless of what they do in the school, they're going to learn to read. And there are two-thirds of the kids who are going to fail miserably in those schools. Right. So that's why we got them. We dibbled every one of those kids. Do, you know, do you know what dibbles is, if I say that? Okay. It's, I say it on purpose because my wife works in one of these schools and this kid came up to her on the day they were dibbling, and, you know, and he was crying, and he said, Ms. Fernandez, Ms. Fernandez, I was absent yesterday. And she goes, it's okay, you were absent yesterday. He said, yeah, but they, everybody was dribbling yesterday, and I didn't get to dribble. <laughs> they were dibbling. <coughs> That's maybe why he's getting, can't read or whatever. But Okay, so we put in place a tiered system of literacy, reading. Every school, these 20 schools or whatever, got 90 minutes of reading every single kid got was in a reading group every single kid got 90 minutes of reading some kids got 30 extra minutes and some kids got more a different curriculum three tiers it was so important that they dedicated 120 minutes of uh, every day to reading in these schools one year later that was the change from 32 to 44 percent of the kids were reading not such a big deal and what we learned is the teachers were not good at delivering the interventions yet took them a while to learn how to do it. They didn't learn how to do it at the university. They had to learn it outside of school. Two years later, 56% of the kids are now reading. And three years later, 2015, we delivered these data to the state legislators, the policymakers in the state, to convince them that this is something the state should do for all the schools that are struggling. And 67% – these are all first graders. I forgot to tell you. It's a big data set, and I just got the first grade data set. All right? So these are different kids – But they're still, all right, teachers are getting better at teaching, basically. And two-thirds of the kids are not being able to read. So we showed these data to the legislators and said, it's working. And that's what we got, silence. (laughs) Nobody clapped. Nobody said hooray, nothing. And my friend, Mike Coyne realized the legislators can't read bar graphs. (laughs) So he did this picture. And he said the following, okay, you all... Your parents, you have a kid in school. Your your child is one of those stick figures. There are 20 kids in this classroom. If you in 2012, before CK3LI, you could expect six-year kids to be able to read, and they're reading not because of the curriculum, because they probably could read already. And you've got 10 kids or six kids who are gonna fail miserably, right? Are holding the book upside down. And you've got other kids in the middle who are saying, What are we here for? Right? And so forth. That's where we started. Then he said, jump ahead three years, legislators. Now we have ten kids who can read well, and we have two kids that need individualized plans. And he points to them and he says, which classroom would you like your child to be in? And then they gave us the the policies and some funding to to do more training. So now we're we're into the third cycle, second cycle of three years to be able to do some more work around it. This is an example of multi-tiered systems for literacy. It's an example of putting tier one in place to shrink the number of kids who require tier two, tier three supports. In 2012, when we started this project, they wanted us to deliver tier three interventions to 2,600 students. And we said, there's no way. You've got to teach tier one really well. And that's where that occurred. So again, it's just an example of how tiered systems kind of operate. I'm supposed to finish it. You want more water, or you tell me I got five minutes? Okay, five minutes. All right, thank you. So, the two triangles are important. Thank you for bearing with me. If you're late for dinner or you're not supposed to be here, you can leave now, right, or whatever. All right, it's important that those two come together because in those same schools we're doing PBIS just like we're doing literacy. You got to do both. And they go hand in hand, just like that cartoon I showed you at the beginning. All right, so, brief little advertisement. If you want to do MTSS, or if you're doing a lit review for your thesis, Get this book. Kent McIntosh is at the University of Oregon, Steve Goodman is in Michigan. This came out in 2015. It's a great text that talks about multi tiered systems and merging or integrating academic and behavior supports together. It's also from preschool up through high school. It's got a number of cool examples if you're interested in that. We're, I'm going to pass this by, just Just be impressed that we're in a lot of schools. (laughs) All right. Here are some international sites that we're. With. Some of the places are just getting started, so I have to be honest that you you this you uh, you're gonna have a hard time coming up with an excuse to go there to, to vacation and study. But there are some places that are doing a really nice job. And as well as here in Australia as well. So I should let you know about the PVI side. All right. I'm gonna pass this by just of time. Oh, I should show you this one picture. All right. I want you to think about <laughs> I, I know you don't have dairy queens here, but you have the equivalent of you know fast food places, you know. Hungry Jacks or something? We, yeah, we McDonald's, you have McDonald's, right? This is the thing that we worry about for school climate. I'm not going to go through school climate specifically, but I just want you to understand how difficult it is to change climate because of this phenomenon, all right? And this phenomenon is called a coercive cycle. So let me just go through quickly. I'll do it the fast way. And I'll do it fast way. I look around the room. Some of you fall in the category of this, so it'll work. So I'm a daddy. Some of you are daddies. This is how this works. You're driving down the street, right-hand side, right? You're driving down the street, and your daughter says to you, I want ice cream. And a good daddy says, what? Not right now, honey. We have to run some chores and errands. After we run the errands, you might be able to have ice cream if we have time. Drive, drive, drive. Daughter says, I want ice cream. I'm hungry. Daddy says, use a quieter voice, please. What did I say? You need to wait till after we run errands, and then maybe – Maybe we're going to have ice cream. Drive, drive, drive. Daughter rolls down the window. Yells out the window. Child abuse, child abuse. Daddy won't give me ice cream. <laughs> what does a good daddy do at this point? Give ice cream. Because what happens when you give ice cream? Screaming stops. I'm, now, remember, I'm not excusing ice screaming or ice cream. I'm just saying what happens when you give the ice cream? Screaming stops. Right? And daddy says, that's cool. And what does, what does daughter say? Screaming works. I get ice cream. Short-term benefit, long-term bad idea. This happens in security lines at the airport. It happens at theaters when you're waiting, grocery stores. It's whenever you, as a parent, are going to be embarrassed, that's when daughters know when to pull this stuff out of the hat and make it work. The problem is the following, because you, your daughter gets the ice cream, right? Finishes the ice cream, you continue to drive on. Your daughter sees the two golden arches. What does she say? <laughs> I want fries. I want big fries. And daddy says, not right now. You just had ice cream. I want... Daddy gives immediately left turn and gives <laughs> french fries. Because it works. The problem with that is that it sets up this what's called a course of cycle. And it becomes habit. Many of the negative classrooms and schools we work in are functioning by this negative. David says, this work sucks. It's too hard. I don't want to do it. Teacher comes over and says, you're not ready to learn. You're not ready to, to learn. Go to the office and tell the office you're being disrespectful in class. David has learned what? Screaming does what? Yes. Work gets taken away, and teacher learns, this is great, I can teach now. Again, I'm not excusing the behavior. All I'm saying is that the behavior becomes part of a way of responding. And if it becomes habit, it becomes something that's very difficult to manage. That's what I get called, right? And that's when we start talking about classroom management and so forth. Oops, sorry. So here's this bunch of cool answers, but Pass this by because David's looking at me. All right. So I want to finish right here. All right. Now, what you missed in between there is if you have problems over this course of cycle and negative climates, one of the best interventions, actually there's a couple of them, but I'm gonna focus on two. One, one of the best interventions is academic success. Academic success is one of our best climate changers. Second one is teaching social skills. And social skills need to be taught just like we teach academics. All right. So just bear with me a second just to illustrate what I mean by this. You've got to teach social skills like you teach academics. It's got to be deliberate. It's got to be explicit. Kids have to practice it and so forth. It's got to be part of the everyday parts. Part of this is true, but just bear with me. So my daughter, my daughter, right, as far as I know, when she was in secondary, secondary school, she had no, none, Trips to the office for rule violations. None, not that I'm aware of, anyway. Right? None. She knew about the hand for now. All right. When you see this sign, do you know what direction to go to find the toilets? Yes. Good, because the arrow tells you which way to go. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When you see this picture, do you know which door to go into if you have to go to the toilet? Sort of. Right. How many of you have been to Boulder, Colorado? How many of you have been to the Dark Horse Inn? (laughs) Okay, this is the Dark Horse Inn. It's a bar. It's a tavern. All right? The door on the left says women with a hand pointing to the other door. And the one on the right says men with a hand pointing to the other door. Do you know which door to go into? All right. Now, so it was set up on purpose for the Boulderites to be entertained to figure (laughs) out how the people from... Sydney, figure out which door to go into. And it works like this. If you've had no drinks, none, what do you do to figure out which door to go into? Yeah, you ask. Or you watch to see what somebody else does to go in. If you've had two to five drinks, what do you do? You peek inside the door to see if you can figure out which one you might want to go into. If you've had seven or more drinks, what do you do? Because you're going to be right half the time. And the other half, it doesn't matter, right? Because you've had your seven or more drinks. Triangle again, right? Now, that was set up on purpose because errors are good in bars. But they're not good in schools. I was doing some work in Guam well, many years ago. And the biggest problem this one school had was urinating in the bushes. Urinating in the bushes. I said, what do you do about it? Oh, we send them to the office. It violates section 7, paragraph 2 of the code. We write them up. As, vi- as a rule violation. I said, really? So I go snooping around the school. Turns out these kids are from off-island, where guess what? Urinating in the bushes is okay. Wouldn't it be so much easier to say, hey, you're from off-island, aren't you? This is what bathrooms how you go to the bathroom in our school. We don't do it in the bushes. We do it over here. You want to catch them early and teach them the right way. Same thing is true with problem solving, anger management, emotional regulation, so forth. Teachable skills, but you got to teach them right? It'd be so much better if you went to this bar and you walked in the door and the bouncer, what we call bouncers? Do you have bouncers here? Okay. Bouncer says, hey, you're obviously not from here. Let me tell you what door. Men's is on the left and women's is on the right. you got to go where the hand points. And even when I tell you that, you're still not sure, are you? <laughs> because there's this dissonance around what that means. Think about kids who go into school and are engaged in these complex social interactions with each other with teachers and may not have the social skills to navigate those and fall back on what they're used to, which is just going anyway or to hit first or to use the F word. Social skills are important. You want to catch those early, and that's true of secondary kids as well as elementary kids and so forth. All right. Go to the, go to the dark horse and It's still there. It's cool, right, and you can walk in just be so smart. You can talk and show your accent and just walk in the right door. It'll be, be cool. All right. So let me pass this by too, sorry. And another one more plug. If you're interested in classroom management, there are a couple of resources I want you to know about, two of, in particular. One, the one on the top right is something we produce for the U.S. Department of Education. It's really a neat guide for classroom management. And you open it up and you click on it and it takes you to elementary and high school examples and so forth. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Left-hand side, there's a new book that just came out this year, uh, actually last year, 16, on classroom management practices, Much of some of the things that I described earlier in, in the presentation. And in, again, these are all available at pbass.org if you go to the, to the slides that are there. And finally, I want to show this picture and to suggest you check, 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 last test on the final. Uh, what I shared with you is that you want to start with, where, what, with what you know is likely to work, the most evidence-based practice. And you want to make sure that it aligns with the needs of your kids in your setting. Implement well. You want to maximize that cell, that circle, right, that box right there. You want to stay away from these other three boxes. We know that signs are a good thing and that, that um, being environmentally smart is a good thing, but not when you use paper to communicate with, Right. You get it? Okay. Or. Or. This one I'm not quite sure about. Right? They did a good job putting the sign up, implementation, but I don't know what the sign's for. Why would you put that sign up there? And if you look carefully, there are little nick marks on it from what? Yeah. Or. That's, that's an ineffective strategy for poorly implemented. I just don't know, you know. It's hard to find those in that cell down there. Or, last one. <laughs> so we got an ineffective practice also being implemented very poorly. Now I'm teasing a little bit around the, around the outside, but we have interventions in schools in America or the United States that look like those. Why are you doing that, right? Which is part of the part of the question. All right, so. You need to call in sick on one of these days. Come to America if you will. I'd encourage you to come to the PBIS Forum because that's our big conference that we have around positive behavioral supports. Chicago is cool. It's a neat place to be. Um, just call in sick. Again, Diane has lots of money. She'll share that with you to kind of pay your way. And finally, if you need anything, go to the pbs.org site. Uh, my email address is up in the left-hand corner. If you have really hard questions, contact Rob Horn or Tim Lewis, who are my co-directors. And um, you're more than happy to come. If you come to stores, you can stay with me because our, our kids have finally gotten out of the house. We have two <laughs> empty bedrooms and come in to visit. So thank you very much for your time. I apologize for going <laughs> over.